Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On July 11, 1804, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr floated down the Hudson River at the crack of dawn, headed to Weehawken, New Jersey. They weren't there to sightsee. Over the years, the men had pushed each other beyond the limits of their patience. What started out as a petty rivalry had twisted into full-blown hatred. Now it was time to settle things once and for all. The two men took their places, ten steps apart, and raised their dueling pistols. Nearly everyone knows what happened next. The rise of Alexander Hamilton and his heated clash with Aaron Burr has captivated history buffs for generations. Hamilton himself wrote, "'Tis enough for us to know that Mr. Burr is one of the most unprincipled men in the United States." But longtime listeners of this show know the end of a story isn't nearly as important as the story itself. And getting to the bottom of Hamilton's relationship with Burr is trickier than it seems. Was Alexander Hamilton's death the unfortunate result of a fair duel? Or was Aaron Burr a cold-blooded killer? Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This week we're taking a deep dive into one of history's most perplexing cases to try to answer the question, was Alexander Hamilton's death a murder? This is a special one-part episode on the death of American founding father Alexander Hamilton. We'll cover Hamilton's remarkable transformation from penniless immigrant to revolutionary scholar. And we'll explore his legendary rivalry with Aaron Burr, along with the dramatic duel that ended it all. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. I'm Tanya Mosley. 
1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Alexander Hamilton's humble beginnings are the stuff of legend. Born on the small island of Nevis, part of the British West Indies at the time, his early life was a series of unmitigated tragedies. To put it bluntly, Hamilton's mom, Rachel Fawcett, fled to Nevis to escape an abusive marriage. There she met Hamilton's father, James, and tried her luck at love again. For a few years, James and Rachel lived happily on the island and had two sons, Alexander and James Jr. But at some point, Hamilton Sr. left Nevis and abandoned his wife and kids. The move left his family in the lurch, and Hamilton grew up with a chip on his shoulder. Children born out of wedlock were discriminated against in those days. Not having the comfort of a family inheritance was one thing, But being seen as lower class was a damning life sentence. Things got even worse in 1768. When Hamilton was around 11 years old, his mother died of yellow fever. For all intents and purposes, he and his brother were orphans. It wasn't until the following year that Hamilton finally found a guardian. But he was expected to get a job. There weren't any child labor regulations at the time, and the merchants at the shipping firm, Beekman and Kruger, had no qualms about pushing Hamilton to his limits. So you're the new boy, Alexander Hamilton. You look awfully young. You sure you can handle this? Uh, Never mind, don't answer that. Whether you can handle it or not, you work for me now, and I don't suffer fools lightly. So do as I say and don't complain. My firm is responsible for supplying this island with everything it needs to prosper. That means building materials, pork, beans, you name it, we sell it. We also handle exports, and we need someone to keep track of it all. Do you like the sound of spending all your waking hours sorting through shipping receipts, inventories, and cargo regulations? Don't answer that. You'll do it, and you'll like it. Or you'll hate it. But I won't know either way, because you won't complain. Understand? Just nod. All right, then. Get to work. Hamilton was saddled with a staggering amount of work, and his job quickly took over his life. Soon, Kruger left for New York, and 12-year-old Hamilton was essentially responsible for running the entire business by himself. Hamilton bowed under the weight of it all, but he never buckled. It didn't matter that people looked down on him for his parentage or his young age. He felt that he was more competent and capable than all the adults around him, And he was determined to prove it. In 1772, Hamilton watched a screaming hurricane devastate the island. As the trees swayed and the lightning cracked above, he wrote about it in his notebook. The essay made it into the island's newspaper, the Royal Danish American Gazette, where it caught the attention of a local minister. He recognized that Hamilton had talent, and worked with the governor to collect some money on the boy's behalf. Thanks to his community support, Hamilton was lifted out of obscurity and put on a ship bound for New York Harbor. 
He took what he could of his meager possessions and arrived in a bustling city, like nothing he'd ever seen. It must have been daunting to be so far from home for the first time, with little except his own wits to rely on. Luckily, he was no ordinary 16-year-old. While he didn't have any cash, he did have a list of the minister's wealthy friends. Thanks to those connections, he found a place to stay and was able to enroll in King's College, which later became Columbia University in 1774. But soon, like everyone else, he grew worried about what was happening in the rest of the colonies. In December of that same year, a motley crew of rebels dumped tons of British tea into the Boston Harbor. Soon afterward, the British shut down Boston's port and deployed troops to patrol the city. In response, many called for a boycott of British products. The local rebels, a group known as the Sons of Liberty, called a meeting to discuss the policy in July 1774. Hamilton joined them on the college lawn. If you don't feel love for your own mother country, then at least see reason. We can't stand up to the British military. They have the most powerful navy in the world. A navy that would have to travel across an entire ocean to effectively fight. We can press our advantage by fighting on familiar ground. Don't you people see? It's absurd to rebel against our own country. We are British. They don't see us that way. And who are you supposed to be? I think you've talked long enough. I'm a patriot, just like so many of the men here. The Crown treats us as inferior subjects, extracting our wealth but stifling our development. Yeah, the college boy is right. I'll admit, I've seen things from the British point of view for too long, but they simply aren't on the side of sense here. The colonists should be in charge of their own destinies. Every man should have a choice and the freedom to prosper. Hear, hear! In April 1775, Hamilton joined a volunteer militia. From that point, the story of his life is more widely known. Many are likely already familiar with Hamilton's meteoric rise. To sum it up, he was tireless. From the time he joined his first company in 1775, he dedicated himself heart and soul to being the ideal soldier. He saw the revolution as a golden opportunity his opportunity. The battlefield was a place where men like him could distinguish themselves regardless of wealth or stature. Which was why he balked when several generals wrote to him early on, asking him to work for them. Hamilton wasn't so interested in helping others achieve their dreams. He wanted to prove himself through feats of heroism and rise up the ranks as a commander. That was one of the only ways for a man without rich parents to make a name for himself. So Hamilton turned the generals down. But there was one man he couldn't refuse. Colonel Hamilton, at ease. Thank you, General Washington. I'm pleased to have you join my staff as an aide. I prefer to think of you all as my family. It's an honor, I suppose. Is that a sour note in your voice? I have it on good authority that you're a man who speaks his mind. Was I misinformed? Well, sir, I am happy to do all I can for you. But I feel my talents are better served on the battlefield than in a secretary's office. 
An aide-de-camp is one of the most essential positions in any army. I know young men are attracted to glory and killing, but it's not all it's cracked up to be. Believe me, I know. Yes, sir. I demand passion for my family, Colonel Hamilton. Will you defend the colonies or not? Is this job beyond your capability? No, sir. I already have a thousand ideas about how we might streamline our efforts. If you might allow me to continue. <laughs> I knew I had the right man for the job. If you become a man I can rely on, then I will look out for you always. Your glory will come. Put your trust in me. In that case, I won't let you down, sir. I will succeed. Coming up, building a new nation brings Alexander Hamilton face to face with his killer. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. Though it may not have been his ideal position, Hamilton could see the advantages of working directly with George Washington, at least at first. His chatty, boundless energy somehow fit perfectly with Washington's practiced stoicism. Washington preferred to listen, and Hamilton never shied away from speaking his mind. Like always, Hamilton threw himself into his work. But this time, he didn't just chain himself to his desk. He was a young man, and he needed more than a job to secure his future. He needed a wife. And if Hamilton spoke his mind, even to George Washington, then you better believe he was the same way when it came to romance. For him, it wasn't enough for a woman to be beautiful. She had to be rich, too. He wasn't shy about emphasizing the importance of money when he wrote to his friend John Lawrence. He made a list for Lawrence of what he looked for in a potential bride. He told his friend he needed a woman who could provide for herself first and foremost. To some extent, it was a practical matter. Hamilton didn't have much money and wasn't likely to be getting more anytime soon. But he was also thinking of how he could use marriage to move up in the world. According to historians, when it came to women, Hamilton sympathized with the opinions of one of his contemporaries, Lord Chesterfield. In a letter, 
Chesterfield compared women to children, claiming he'd never met a reasonable one and couldn't trust them with serious matters. Clearly, Hamilton didn't have as much experience with women as he pretended. But one person who always saw Hamilton's good qualities was Elizabeth Schuyler, or Betsy for short. She was the beautiful daughter of a general who just happened to be one of the richest men in New York. In short, she checked every box on Hamilton's wish list. The two met at Washington's headquarters and struck up a courtship in no time. Hamilton visited Betsy's home nearly every night to woo her, often with her family right there beside him. By the end of 1780, Hamilton and Betsy were married. It seemed like he was on top of the world. He was marrying the woman of his dreams, and he'd secured a prestigious position in the army. In a matter of months, he'd fulfilled his goal of becoming indispensable to General Washington. But as time wore on, he realized he may have succeeded a little too well. The year after his marriage, Hamilton was restless. He'd been Washington's right-hand man for years by that point, and had proven his worth time after time. He longed to get out of the dusty offices and see battle again. Washington, however, refused to let his aide take charge of a company of troops, even after two other generals backed Hamilton up on the matter. The resentment was bound to boil over at some point, but the big confrontation was anything but. It came after Hamilton and Washington had stayed up all night, finishing up dispatch paperwork. The next morning, the two men met at the top of the stairs in their offices. According to Hamilton, their exchange went something like this. Morning, General. I'll be with you in a moment. Colonel Hamilton, I've been waiting for you downstairs for the past ten minutes. You disrespect me. I had no idea you were already waiting for me. But if you think I'm disrespecting you, then maybe it's best that we part ways. Well... If that's your choice, then so be it. And that was pretty much that. Washington regretted their fight, but in retrospect, it seems like Hamilton was just looking for any excuse to quit. True to his reputation, though, Washington didn't hold a grudge. A few months later, he finally made Hamilton's dreams come true and put him in charge of four light infantry companies— Hamilton continued his distinguished service until the end. His men led the attack at the Battle of Yorktown, the last major land battle of the Revolutionary War. Hamilton's bravery made newspapers all over the new country. But while the war was won, the real work was just beginning. Now that the rebels officially had a nation, they had to figure out how to run it. When Hamilton wasn't squabbling with the other founding fathers over the direction of the United States, he tried to live the life he'd put on hold since the war began. He settled down with Betsy and their son Philip in New York, where he worked as a lawyer by day. Hamilton tended to gravitate towards cases with strong legal principles at their cores. He wanted his work to really make an impact on the fledgling American justice system. It was in the courtroom where he first had extended contact with the man who would become his rival, Aaron Burr. Like Hamilton, Burr had grown up as an orphan, though he came from a much more prestigious family. 
He'd also served in the Continental Army with some distinction, though much less than the legendary Alexander Hamilton. After the war, the two became the most sought-after attorneys in New York City. But their differences sadly overshadowed their similarities. Hamilton was effusive, a talkative showman with strong principles. Burr, on the other hand, was the picture of affluent dignity. He spoke in a low, controlled tone and only when necessary. Passion had no place in his courtroom. Typically, the two men squared off against each other in front of a judge. But on occasion, they worked together. It was during one of these collaborations that the cracks in their relationship first emerged. I'll take care of the closing statements, Mr. Burr. No need for you to worry. Nonsense. There's plenty to cover. We'll split the time between us. If you insist. Though, I must say, I've dealt with this judge before. I know exactly how to sway him to our side. But I suppose it's only fair. I'll save my piece for the end, then. Hold up. I'd actually prefer to speak last. I feel ending on a clear, factual note would be best in this case. What's that supposed to mean? That I don't speak the truth? There's no need to get into an argument. I swear, that passion will be your undoing. If you don't want to argue, then just agree to let me have the last word. Fine. But you won't have much to say. True to his word, Burr let Hamilton speak last, but he made sure to methodically cover every aspect of the case while he had the floor. When it was Hamilton's turn to talk, he had practically nothing left to say. Petty disagreements like these no doubt aggravated Hamilton. He hated nothing more than being talked down to, especially from someone with a privileged background like Burr. But their contact around this time was pretty limited, and over the next few years, Hamilton had his hands full with issues that seemed much more important than Aaron Burr. On April 30th, 1789, George Washington took office as the first president of the United States of America. Though Alexander Hamilton's encouragement was one of the only reasons he agreed to run for the office. Hamilton's efforts earned him the title of Secretary of the Treasury. Washington tried to select cabinet members with different backgrounds in political philosophies, hoping to get a fair and balanced sampling of ideas. Instead, he created a den of vipers. Hamilton spent most of his time arguing with the president's other advisors, especially Thomas Jefferson. Despite some pushback on his financial plans, Hamilton often got his way thanks to clever politicking. But he wasn't the only one using his political connections to get ahead. In 1791, Aaron Burr was elected to the U.S. Senate as a moderate candidate. It was a surprising victory. Burr was essentially the compromise between two warring factions. More importantly, the win unseated Hamilton's father-in-law, Philip Schuyler. Hamilton was furious. Not only had he felt he failed his party, the Federalists, in securing the seat, he'd failed his own family. At the time, Aaron Burr didn't seem like a strong political force. In fact, he kept his principles, if he had any, close to his vest, refusing to openly ally with any party. In effect, this fence-sitting won him the seat, since his unclear views prevented any opponents from painting him as a radical. 
Perhaps that was what really got under Hamilton's skin. Aaron Burr didn't seem like someone who had the new country's best interests at heart. He was pretty clearly only out for himself. But Hamilton had enough principles for the both of them. And from the moment Burr won that Senate seat, he was on Hamilton's hit list. But he wasn't the only one with a hit list. In 1791, one of Hamilton's other rivals, Thomas Jefferson, saw an opportunity. He arranged a trip to New York to marshal allies against Hamilton's political party, the Federalists. One of the men he met with was none other than Aaron Burr. There's no record of what they discussed, but it likely went something like this. Mr. Burr, so nice of you to join me. I'm honored. I've called you here because we need to talk about Alexander Hamilton. What about him? Surely you can guess. You know the threat he poses to democracy. I don't like to pick sides in these matters. Well, I'm afraid it's a bit too late for that now. You ousted the man's father-in-law from his Senate seat. What about it? I saw an opportunity and I took it. Hamilton has done the same thing countless times. It's nothing personal. He'll get over it. <laughs> I see you don't really know Alexander Hamilton. Mr. Burr, Hamilton doesn't get over things. Once he sees you as an enemy, it's over. To him, you're nothing but a lowlife, now and forever. So, what are you suggesting I do about it? <laughs> I say, if Hamilton thinks you're a scoundrel, it's about time you start acting like one. Burr apparently didn't have any problems playing dirty. For years, he waited quietly in the background while Hamilton worked to nurture his Federalist Party and push its political agenda. Then, in 1800, Aaron Burr finally found an opportunity to strike. Coming up, revenge begets revenge. Now back to the story. From their first meeting in the 1770s, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr clashed. For years, the two men stayed distant and kept their petty rivalry at a simmer. But by 1800, the feud was personal. Burr found a copy of a damning critique of President John Adams. The tract was written by Hamilton for limited publication in South Carolina. It seemed designed to give his political allies potential talking points against the president. But in 1800, Aaron Burr had it published for all to see. Mr. Burr, perhaps you could tell me what this is? It looks like the public conduct and character of John Adams Esquire, president of the United States. It can be quite harsh, but I found it to be a riveting read. You test me, Burr. Don't blame me. You're the one who wrote it. For a limited circulation, not for just anyone. All I did was publish your work for a wider audience. I thought writers liked that sort of thing. Don't you all do it for the attention? This isn't over. Things got even more heated a few months later. Burr ran for president and wound up tied with Thomas Jefferson. The decision went to Congress, and Hamilton had to choose which of his two rivals to back. Ugh, we're really between a rock and a hard place here. Yes, we Federalists have to stick together. 
But who is the rock and who is the hard place? Jefferson or Burr? I'll admit, I'm not sure myself. But my gut says we should select Jefferson. Really? But you've butted heads with Jefferson more than anyone else. I can't stand his political positions, but I have to admit, I respect the man. And that's more than I can say for Aaron Burr. Are you sure? The fate of our young country may be at stake. Which is exactly why we can't leave it in Burr's hands. In the end, Jefferson won the presidency as Hamilton hoped, making Burr vice president. To be honest, Hamilton's efforts in Congress probably weren't the deciding factor in the decision. All Hamilton did was further cement his rivalry with Burr. But the real bomb was yet to come. The next few years were not kind to Burr. After losing to Jefferson, he found himself sidelined in the vice presidency. So, in 1804, he ran for governor of New York, hoping to revive his political career. Again, Hamilton got in the way. He reached out to his connections to wheel and deal behind the scenes. He didn't want any Federalists voting for Burr, even if Burr said he'd parted ways with the Republicans. Afterward, Hamilton let his true feelings about Burr slip at a dinner party. Say, Hamilton, what do you think of Mr. Burr's campaign for governor? Is it time to let bygones be bygones? (laughs) I won't exaggerate. I'll merely say what I must. Aaron Burr is a dangerous man. We can't have someone like that in office. Mm, Sounds like fighting words. I've never backed down from a fight for my country, and I don't plan to stop now. Hamilton's insults were secretly recorded by a man at the dinner party and leaked to the press. When he read them, Burr exploded with anger. From his perspective, politics were like business. There was some backstabbing involved, but only for the sake of the bottom line. But this felt personal. It seemed like Hamilton was driven purely by spite, not political ideals. Now, not only had Burr lost the governor's race, his career was in tatters. He was technically still vice president, but the position wasn't a very powerful one in those days. He seemed to have no political future. And on top of it all, he had to read about Hamilton slandering his name, kicking him while he was down. He believed his honor was at stake. And in those days, there was only one way to repair it. A duel. At the time, dueling was fairly common practice. Some states had laws against it, but it was largely accepted by the public. And though it was clearly steeped in macho ideals, it wasn't typically as dangerous as it may sound. Because most duels never made it to the battlefield. The practice had a code of conduct. Anyone who was challenged to a duel could make a simple apology and let the matter drop. The problems came when neither side would give in. Since Hamilton and Burr were public figures, a hit to their honor or reputations could have far-reaching consequences. On the other hand, preserving one's honor clearly had extra advantages for a politician. So when Hamilton received the challenge, he felt as trapped as Burr did. If he apologized for the insult, he'd be admitting that he had no honor and had attacked a man who didn't deserve it. His career, his legacy, everything he'd worked for since the age of 12 might go up in smoke. Yet, 
If he accepted, he'd be drawn into senseless violence. His life hung in the balance. In the end, Hamilton accepted the challenge. The entire affair had the aura of a ritual more than a contest. Since he was risking his life, Hamilton made sure no one could accuse him of being anything other than a storybook gentleman. For example, like Aaron Burr, Hamilton's dueling pistol had a hair-trigger function that could be set to fire with an extremely light touch. But Hamilton vowed he wouldn't use the hair-trigger during the duel. That would be unfair. He deliberately threw away a potential advantage for the sake of his honor. And soon, he would throw away a lot more than that. As the sun rose on July 11, 1804, he and Burr took a pair of small boats down to Weehawken, New Jersey. While dueling was still illegal in New Jersey, the state was less aggressive about prosecuting the crime than New York. Burr and Hamilton also each brought a man to serve as their second. They were meant to ensure the contest was fair and serve as backup for their friend should things go south. William Van Ness was Aaron Burr's second, while Nathaniel Pendleton stood by Hamilton. A doctor named David Hussock also came along. Every possible legal precaution was taken. Both Hamilton and Burr were lawyers, after all. The dueling pistols were kept out of sight as much as possible. Everything was planned and orderly. When the boats docked and the men picked their spots, all that was left to do was duel. Hello, Hamilton. Hello, Mr. Burr. When this contest ends, I only hope that we both have our honor. It's in the Lord's hands now. But I trust things will be made right once and for all, here. Sirs, the grounds have been cleared. Mr. Hamilton, please take your place ten paces away from Mr. Burr. Uh, yes, right there. You may now both ready your weapons. Please say aye when you have readied yourself. Aye. Aye. Present! Hamilton and Burr fired at each other from the side, with each man only seeing their opponent's profile. So when Burr struck Hamilton, the bullet entered his body just above his right hip. It punctured his liver and diaphragm, finally coming to a stop in his spine. The pain would have been excruciating. The doctor on the scene rushed in to staunch the bleeding, but there wasn't much else he could do. Medical technology wasn't advanced enough to do anything more than delay the inevitable. Hamilton was scooped up and taken home. He died there the following day with his wife and children by his side. He didn't even make it to his 50th birthday. Aaron Burr was luckier, depending on who you ask. Hamilton's bullet missed him by a few feet, a surprising blunder considering Hamilton was an experienced soldier. Even if he had missed by chance, it seemed like he should have been closer to his mark. Some historians blame the miss on Hamilton's weapon and his refusal to use the hair-trigger feature. Others speculate that he never intended to hit Burr in the first place. Hamilton told some friends before the contest that he was going to deliberately throw away his shot. We'll probably never know for sure since William Van Ness and Nathaniel Pendleton gave conflicting accounts. 
The only other person who saw Hamilton shoot was the man who killed him. And Aaron Burr didn't seem to care why he'd won. After shooting Hamilton, he returned home and acted like nothing happened. A cousin happened to come by to visit, and Burr made absolutely no mention of the duel. The public outcry that swept through Manhattan took him by complete surprise. Burr had grievously underestimated Hamilton's popularity. The Federalists, incensed that their founder was dead, accused Burr of intentional murder. Rumors swirled that Burr had been meticulously practicing his aim leading up to the duel. One story claimed he wished he'd shot Hamilton straight through the heart. All the gossip was likely just that. Burr felt he'd resolved the duel in an honorable way and didn't regret what he did. But he maintained that from the start, he wasn't determined to kill Hamilton. He would have accepted an apology instead. In his eyes, Hamilton gave him no choice. Still, he left Manhattan for a few days after the story hit the papers. And it was a good thing he did, because a New York grand jury indicted him for murder. Later on, the state of New Jersey did the same. The vice president was a fugitive. Burr must have been terrified. Over the next few months, Burr bounced around from Philadelphia to Georgia to Spanish territory. He met with an array of powerful friends and political allies, desperately trying to wriggle his way out of his charges. He'd spent his entire life building connections with the wealthy and powerful. He was confident that someone would help him. And eventually, he succeeded, thanks to some friends in high places and a letter signed by several members of Congress. The murder charges were dropped. The only consequences were that he was ostracized by his former colleagues. But by that point, Aaron Burr had bigger problems. He was embroiled in yet another political scandal, though he was eventually acquitted. Clearly, Hamilton's death hadn't repaired his honor. It only cast a darker shadow over his political career. Burr moved to Europe for a few years in a self-imposed exile before returning stateside. He spent the remainder of his life in relative obscurity, practicing law and getting by however he could. Though Burr escaped jail time, his legacy was left in tatters. Meanwhile, Alexander Hamilton's renown only grew. From that point of view, it seems like Burr got what he deserved, or at least something like it. He was technically a murderer, but on the other hand, his duel with Hamilton was fair according to the standards of the time. The contest never should have happened, but Hamilton shouldn't have agreed to it in the first place either. Both men let their honor and concern for their careers get in the way of their lives, families, and happiness. Aaron Burr was undoubtedly an arrogant and selfish man who put himself before the country he helped create. But few would call him a cold-blooded killer. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on the feud between Hamilton and Burr, we found the book War of Two by John Sedgwick extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. 
We'll see you next time. Solve Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Terrell Wells, edited by Maggie Admire and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Freddie Beckley. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Dinesh Alvis, Cameron Nicod, Ellie Schiff, and Julian Smith. Solve Murder stars Winnie McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.